Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 and after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying do not be afraid Abram I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward after these things refers to after his battle with the five kings from the east his defeat of them uh, returning uh, the loot and all of the people back to Sodom and the associated uh, you know cities and kind of country states that were uh, in that region and uh, so following that particular victory the Lord uh, comes to Abram in this vision and declares to him that he is not to be uh, afraid now that tells us that uh, Abraham was either afraid at the moment or he was uh, on uh, had the potential of becoming fearful and uh, I'm inclined to believe that um, as he has just uh, conquered those five kings he has no uh, assurance that they won't go home uh, regroup with even a greater kind of army and come back and take on Abraham and get their revenge from him and Abraham would be at a little bit of a disadvantage even compared to the four kings that had been defeated because they had walled cities and fortresses to fight against these kings Abram is living is a pilgrim out in the middle of nowhere uh, so to speak he doesn't have walled villages he doesn't have a strong defensive position and these kinds of things but he has the greatest defense that a person can have in life and that is that he has the Lord as his defense and and the Lord comes to Abram and tells him listen you just relax don't be afraid of, of repercussions here of having done the right thing I am I am your uh, shield and I am your exceedingly great reward he tells him that he doesn't have to live a life of fear for two reasons number one the Lord is his protector the Lord is his provider so uh, and those when the Lord is your protector and he is your provider you know you can kind of relax certainly you can relax much more than we do relax but uh, this is the a great uh, reminder to him he had uh, turned away tremendous reward that material wealth that had been offered to him by the king of Sodom didn't want to take a shoelace from this guy because he didn't want what he was about and his name and reputation and what God was going to do through his life in any way to be associated with the king of Sodom and the Lord comes to him in essence says I, I know that you it cost you mightily materially though he was a rich man already to uh, be faithful to my call upon your life to be faithful um, uh, and and, uh, and zealous for uh, what I would do through your life that it would not any way become tainted by anything in the world and and so I'll make sure that you uh, are, are never lose ultimate reward you know for making that kind of a stand so the Abram listens to the Lord and doubtless very thankful for uh, the encouragement the peace that that brings uh, to his heart you might be sitting here just terrified in a situation and uh, this do not be afraid doesn't just apply to Abram it applies to all of us that phrase will be used 84 85 times in the entirety of of the Bible it's God's word to us tonight he is our shield also he is our provider uh, also we can rest in him and Abram said Lord God what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus and then Abram said look you've given me no offspring indeed one born into my house is my heir and so uh, Abram is, is happy for the uh, promises of God in, in all of this but he's a little bit frustrated and he's a little bit confused over the fact that he continues to be childless God had promised to Abram uh, that he would make a great nation of him that the people that would descend from his lineage would uh, be a blessing to the whole world and all and yet he's childless between he and uh, Sarai and so he's confused and the offer of great reward he kind of is thinking to himself probably 
I'm, I've, I've got more money and herds and wealth than I could spend in my lifetime. Anything you would give me now is going to go uh, to my heirs. And, uh, but I have no heirs to give it to. So you promise me wealth, but uh, what blessing is that to me unless there's a child to pass uh, this, this on to? And he speaks of the only heir that he has in his house, uh, verse 2, as being Eliezer of Damascus and uh, that is doubtless his servant in in his household and the custom uh, in that day was if you were a man of considerable wealth uh, married or not married but most often married and you came to the end of your life and there was no children as a part of the union uh, with your wife uh, to pass the wealth on to it was uh, customary then to adopt your uh, master servant your head servant as your son and then pass the wealth on uh, to him because he would be kind of your most trusted person who knew you best. You'd have the closest relationship with him. And so that's what he's saying. If I were to die today, and he's a long ways from dying, by the way, if I were to die today, all of this is going to go to my servant here. And so I'm thankful for the offer, but I'm confused about uh, your methods here, uh, uh, Lord. So he, he reminds the Lord that he hasn't given him uh, an heir, and, and that's his, his concern here. Beautiful, really, related to Abram. One of the things he's also saying to the Lord, I think, here, is that my concern isn't money. My concern isn't wealth. You have prospered me. I'll take all the prosperity you want to run my way. But the thing that's most important to me is that boy that you promised me. And not just that you promised me a son, but that you promised me a son and then a nation to come from my lineage that would bless the whole world. And, and that's what's most important to him. Not money, it's God's call upon his life. So he's bringing all of this up uh, to, to the Lord in this. The Lord answers uh, Abram. In verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, it's not going to be your servant, uh, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. You're going to have a child. Don't think that I... You know, some of this we think God's got just door number one. You know, that's it. It's, you either do it this way. And so all there is is Eliezer here and God's in some kind of a pinch. God says, just relax here. It's not, it's, the, this, your heir isn't going to be this servant. I'm going to bring an heir from your own body. And then he brought uh, Abram uh, outside. And the Lord is kind of, I like how he is as a teacher. He speaks, but then, you know, he kind of does a little PowerPoint here too. I guess, and, and uh, he, he uses illustrations to drive home the point, brings them outside, they're out in the desert, and, uh, and it's uh, evening time and, and all, so you can really see uh, the stars, not like in the Central Valley, on any day, you know, things are so smoggy, but uh, sorry to remind you of that. But he said to him, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. Now nobody can number the stars but the Lord. So just look at all of those stars that are up in, in the heavens. And the Lord said to him, so shall your descendants be. Well, the stars up in the heaven, to anyone other than God, innumerable. So he's telling him, not only are you going to have a son, uh, but the descendants of that son are going to be innum innumerable. And then we're told concerning uh, Abram and his response to that promise of God, he believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. That's the first use of the word believed in the Bible. So he believes in what God has promised him, this covenant related to his, his son and uh, this coming son, and righteousness was put to Abram's account based upon his faith. God has made a, a covenant with Abraham or Abram that an heir is going to come from his body. What God promised to Abraham, Abram here, was impossible for Abram and, and Sarai to produce in their own flesh. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that at this particular point in time, uh, they were as good as dead. doesn't mean that they were a year away from death, but in terms of producing a child, now remember, they're about 75, 
plus uh, years old and all. And they've been ha- trying to have children since she's probably 15, 16 years old. And they have not been successful. She's way past change of life. He's probably not working all that well himself on, on things. We don't want to get too graphic too we on things. But... Uh, but so it's just it's a physical impossibility apart apart from from the Lord. But he trusted God to do what they could not do, and he trusted God to keep this covenant uh, that God had made with him. And on the basis of that faith, God accounted his him for righteousness. Now, uh, Paul takes this by the Spirit of God in the New Testament and declares that in the same way we have, us as, as people, Jew and Gentiles, we have no way of saving ourselves based upon our own effort. Uh, spiritually, we're as dead uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 dead in our sins was our condition before we came to know the Lord no hope of saving ourselves in and of ourselves any more than Abram or Sarai could have had a child on their own at that age so we trusted in God to do what was impossible for us to do for ourselves and that is to forgive us through Jesus on the basis of the covenant that he's made with us through Jesus and that is Jesus said uh, he said spoke of a new covenant in my blood and and so uh, we have put our faith in in the blood of Jesus Christ his sacrifice on the cross for our sins his burial his resurrection on the third day uh, as the basis for our forgiveness and then when we do that the Bible declares that our faith is accounted for righteousness our belief in Jesus when I on the day that I got saved I put my faith in Christ Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins and righteousness right onness rightness was put to my account uh, in in the in the heavenly uh, accounting office Paul put it this way in 2nd Corinthians he said for he that is the father made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him Romans chapter 4 verse 22 and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness speaking of Abram now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for us that it might be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus uh, our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification now the Jewish religious leaders at the time of, of Jesus they were teaching that Man's salvation was based upon being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. And that's why Paul, in writing the book of Romans and then in the book of, of Galatians also, he reminded them that this declaration of Abram's righteousness, his right standing before God, occurred before God ever established circumcision with with the Jews or with Abram in other words circumcision can't be a means of establishing a right standing before God because God declares them to be righteous before the right of circumcision they were saying that you became righteous in the eyes of God on the basis of keeping the law of Moses but the law of Moses is over 400 years out from chapter 15 of the book of Genesis so he is declared righteous long before circumcision is given, long before the, uh, the law of Moses is given. In other words, a right standing before God occurs independent of those two things. It occurs on the basis of faith as evidence in the father of faith. In the whole Bible, the great father of faith is Abraham. The father of faith had an imputed righteousness and and so uh, he uh, believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness righteousness is established before God on the basis of faith 
both the Old Testament, very beginning, and then also in the New Testament. Now, God not only uh, gives Abram promises related to uh, his descendants that would come uh, from him, but he also speaks to him uh, of of the land, the covenant involving uh, the land. And he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. And it's the land of Canaan, modern-day uh, Israel. And so the Lord restates His uh, promise to Abraham that He and His descendants uh, will inherit the land of Canaan of Israel. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And we will see in just a little bit, even tonight, that that promise is given uh, not through Ishmael, uh, certainly not through Esau, not through the Arab nations, but through his son Abram's, Abraham's son Isaac. And, uh, and that land uh, is given by God to the Jews. And then he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so Abram believes the promise that God has given him related to his son. He believes the promise related to the land, but it was very common in those days to ask for a a contract or a covenant or an agreement to be confirmed as an evidence that uh, of of, uh, uh, goodwill on the part of of both of the parties that are making the covenant uh, or the agreement. And so the Lord then... Uh, speaks uh, to uh, the uh, to Abram here and his response Abram says all right uh, we'll put this land it's a land deal so all right this land is in escrow it's you know coming uh, to us and all and so how do we close escrow here and uh, and then in verse 9 the Lord tells him how he'll do it he said to Abram bring me a three-year-old heifer a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all of these things to the Lord, cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite one another, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham or Abram drove them away. Now, this was the... He cuts the animals in two, and and he lays one half of the animal over here, one half over here, one half over here, one half over here, the birds on either side, and he leaves an opening for walking between the sacrifice. Now, that, that was an Old Testament way of, uh, of signing a contract. And uh, so in those days, they didn't go down to the lawyer's office. This is how they did that. So talk about improvement over time. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, one of them. So we would take and make a deal with something like this, and I'd make my promise. And, and uh, uh, before there were lawyers and all of those things, we'd shake on it and that kind of thing. This is how they signed contracts in, in, in those days and uh, the Lord is so gracious to kind of condescend uh, to the culture and all that's around here and and he's going to kind of sign this contract with Abram in this uh, in this way so what they would do then is they would lay the sacrifice out like this and then both parties would walk between uh, the sacrifice in fact they do kind of a figure eight around the sacrifice each one of them would do it giving new meaning to cutting a deal but the idea was is that as they would both do this the idea was if I violate uh, my end of this covenant may I end up like the sacrifices that that are here and and so this is all very very ordinary uh, very very clear to the to the culture in in those days now this is very very good to to remember that if you ever buy a house or property and you go to uh, the office there to sign all of the papers and everything is how many papers am I going to sign I mean how it could be messier. It could be a lot messier than just signing uh, uh, papers. And so 
Uh, then we're told in verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep then fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So he, start, he, 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 he uh, goes into a sleep, and he begins to have a nightmare. And here's the nightmare that he's having. And then the Lord uh, said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them, that is the descendants of Abram, for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterward they will come out uh, with great possessions. And so uh, God uh, prophesies to him here of the fact that the descendants of, of Abram in their future, they're not going to receive the land of Canaan as their own immediately, that they will be uh, in bondage in a strange land for 400 years, speaking of their bondage in Egypt. And it was a bondage that was uh, very, very important to God's plan. Uh, the bondage of the children of Israel in Egypt served God's purposes. It was difficult for the people because it was, it was affliction and it was truly uh, bondage. But it was in Egypt that the descendants of Abram went from being just kind of a big clan, a, a, a large family of about 70 people, to becoming a nation. When, when the Lord uses Joseph and Jacob to bring the children of Israel, the twelve sons of uh, uh, tribes and sons of, of Jacob, brings them into Egypt. They come into Egypt. They're there for uh, 430 years, and they just go in as 70 people, counting the men and the women and the children and all. By the time they come out, they're a nation of somewhere between two and three million people. If they try to take the land of Canaan or to try and establish it at this point with those numbers, very, very difficult. And so God warns him, you're gonna, your people are going to be for a time in this kind of a situation, but they're going to come into the land. And so as we go through the scriptures, we'll see how the Lord fulfilled all of that. Now, it, it is interesting that in Exodus chapter 12, uh, the Bible speaks of the fact that the children of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years. And uh, here in verse 13, the Lord declares, uh, speaks of 400 years. And so sometimes people look at that and they see some kind of a contradiction. And how can there uh, be a contradiction here in the Word of God? There really isn't a contradiction because you notice in verse 13 that the Lord said, and they will, speaking of the Egyptians, afflict them for 400 400 years. Remember when the children of Israel went into Egypt, they came in to very favorable circumstances because Joseph was the second most powerful man in Egypt at that time. It's only after uh, Joseph dies and, and then a Pharaoh rises up on the scene who did not know Joseph as the book of Exodus begins that the affliction began upon the children of Israel in the land. So they were there for 430 years only 400 of it was affliction 30 years. They still enjoyed uh, favor in the land because of the favor that was upon, upon Joseph. And then the Lord said, Now as for you, verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, speaking of his descendants, going to be four generations out before they come in, and they actually possess this land. And here's the reason why, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet uh, complete. So he informs Abram, you're not going to see this in your lifetime. In fact, uh, the next four gen it won't be till the fourth generation that your descendants will come in and take this land and fulfill the promises that I have uh, given to you. Moses and Aaron were part uh, of the fourth generation. And it's interesting to me, the Lord tells Abram uh, why the children of Israel couldn't claim the land now. He tells, him in verse, in, tells Abram in verse 16, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, 
now this is important. Uh, the Amorites were people who lived in Canaan. They lived in the land that was being promised by God to the Jews. And at the fourth uh, generation, their sin would be complete. Joshua would then be used by God to chasten them and, uh, and d- destroy them and drive them out and, and all. And then God would uh, displace the existing population of the land because of, of the terrible wickedness uh, of the people that were there then give the land to the descendants of of Abram. Uh, God looks at the land of Canaan uh, right now and he says, in essence, I can't give that over to you. Uh, He knows that he's going to bring the Jews in and he's going to say, wipe everything out when you come in here. Don't leave anything when you, you come in and conquer this land. But he knows it's going to be 400 years out before that would be a righteous judgment upon the land because when he looks at the Amorites, their sin is not yet in its, its fullest uh, kind of, of expression. And, and so uh, God didn't want to judge the Amorites until their wickedness demanded it. But he knew you give them four more generations and there will not be one more person among the Amorites that will have any interest in the things of God. Their wickedness will make them a plague uh, upon the earth in addition to all of the other peoples. And then when he would bring Joshua in to conquer the land with the Jews, he would accomplish two things. Number one, the giving of the land to the Jews, but also the wiping out of the wickedness that had come to its full ripeness among the people in uh, the wicked people in the land of Israel at that time. Here's why it's important. What God is saying is that when he sends Joshua and the children of Israel to go into the land and wipe everything out, that this isn't like a spur-of-the-moment thing that he is doing. This isn't a judgment that he just wakes up one day and says, I want you to go in and, and wipe out the wicked people. He waits 400 years to, or, or four generations to give these people an opportunity to repent and to turn, and, and he knows they're not going to do it, and, and then uh, they will, by virtue of their wickedness, become a danger to all of the other people that live in the world. And, and so, at that time, once their wickedness is complete, nobody's going to repent, they're a plague on the earth, then God says, speaks to them and says, go in and wipe them out. Now, Oftentimes when you'll hear, especially today, because there's a lot of discussion about Islam and the violence of Islam and the wiping out of innocent people uh, uh, by uh, portions of Islam and this kind of thing and the teaching of Islam and, 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 and the uh, violence and, and all of this. And when, so often when someone uh, is confronted related to Islam uh, concerning the violent nature of the religion since it's beginning in 600 uh, AD plus and just wiping out and it had a violent start and it's had a violent history all the way through to this day they will typically say yeah but read your Old Testament and uh, read the scriptures of the Jews and the Christians the God of the Bible is just as violent and, and all as Allah is and it is a failure to recognize that God gave the Amorites and the people of the land of Canaan a very long time to repent of their sin and when they would not then God says I want them to be destroyed it's kind of like this if we had you went out to a public park here in Modesto and a bunch of kids playing on a playground and all and uh, you're a law enforcement officer and and you're there in that park and patrolling the park and you see a rabid dog come into the park and it's headed toward all of the children that are on the playground now the dog is rabid it has uh, within itself it has uh, the seed sown for its own destruction it has no hope of coming out of its current condition the only question is how many people is that animal going to infect with rabies before it dies 
So you have that rabid animal making its way toward the children who are uninfected with the disease and, and all. The officer, police officer, takes out the gun, shoots the rabid dog, and it is an act of mercy. It is an act of love uh, and righteousness in order to protect the children and kill the animal that is, is going to die under the weight of, of what it is, is sown into itself already. And the same thing is true of the Amorites. God could look at them and say they are never going to turn. They will only infect. They will only do damage. They will only uh, harm the innocent. And I want them now to be judged for their wickedness and their failure uh, to repent. In other words, his judgment is measured. This is not characteristic of God. But God, even when he's forced to judge, he waits four generations to do it. So you're talking about two entirely uh, different things, but this thing is thrown up uh, all, all of, of, of the time. And he said in verse 17, um, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and kind of a, a, a fire pot and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. So we still got the animals that are laying out and everything. And Abram's uh, in the middle of this dream and the vision and the whole thing that's going on, the nightmare of all of that thing. And then when it comes time to confirm the covenant by walking through uh, the sacrifices, the Lord alone walks through the sacrifice. He's in so often in the scriptures, he is spoken of as a flame of fire. Remember, he led the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When the law came on, the, on uh, uh, Mount Sinai and all, he comes down upon the mount as a fire. So fire is a very common picture of the Lord. He walks uh, through the animals, and, what's be, and, and Abram doesn't. And what's being communicated by the Lord in that is, this is a one-sided covenant. The promises that I have made to you concerning your son, concerning that land, those promises are going to come true solely on the basis of my faithfulness and who I am and what I am and not on the basis of anything you bring to the table related to this. And so it wasn't based upon Abram being faithful to anything and God being faithful to his side of things. This was all loaded toward God. In other words, this thing is going to happen because there's no possibility of it being, being disqualified by uh, a failure on Abram's part. So it's a very one-sided covenant that God makes with Abraham here. There's only one more. There's only one covenant that is more one-sided in the entirety of the Bible. And that is the covenant that Christ has made with us. Remember, Jesus spoke of a new covenant in my blood. Not in my blood and you keeping the Ten Commandments. Or in my blood and you being circumcised. Or in my blood and you being faithful. Or in my blood and some other thing on your part. The covenant that God has established with us as Christians related to our salvation is a completely one-sided covenant. Now we'll respond to that forgiveness that God gives us by being obedient to His Word as an expression of our thanks. But it's not based upon us bringing anything other than our faith to that, to that covenant. And, the re and what that does is it fills me with the confidence that my salvation is sure. I mean, what if, uh, and remember Jesus when he cried on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. What if he had cried out, it has begun. So, oh man, what's begun? I thought I was saved. Or if he said, listen, what if he took a deal and I got a stopwatch right here and I just, Adam's right here in the front row and uh, call him up on the stage and everything and say, Adam, all right, pretend I'm God and all. Adam, if you come to the end of your life and you be, still believe in Jesus and you still have this watch, you'll be saved. How much peace will he have? Tell you put that thing in his pocket, zip that pocket up, never take those pants off. The rest of he'd be a wreck. But if if there was even the smallest part uh, dependent uh, upon him, so God knows what He's dealing with. 
And it's a one-sided covenant that he makes with Abram and that he makes with us. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I have given you this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the land that God has, has, has made this covenant with, with Israel related to all the way, not to the Jordan River, but all the way to the river Euphrates. That, that means all of the country of Jordan and uh, a good part of, of modern-day Iraq. The Kenites, the Kenazites, uh, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That is the land. These are the people that are living in the land. This is the land that I am giving to you. Now, they have never possessed all that land in their history. But they they will possess it, I I think, doubtless during the kingdom age, a thousand year uh, reign of, of, of Christ. But this is the land that God has given to them. And uh, it doesn't matter what the UN says or anybody else says related to that. I think sometimes when we watch the news, I think sometimes we have to be very, very careful to uh, look at things not so geopolitically on, on stuff, but to look at things biblically. We're always talking about Israel giving back land. And they defeat their enemies to get that land. Who says God isn't giving them that land? He wants to give them that land all the way to the boundaries that God has, has given. They've got to stay right here in these boundaries and all. And a war breaks up, God blesses them in the war, they gain more land and all, and then we squawk over it. This is the land that is, it, it, they are going to possess uh, one day. And, uh, and so uh, there isn't any need for them to give it back. God has given it uh, to them. And then notice in verse 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now there's a 10-year gap between uh, chapter uh, 15 and chapter 16. And uh, so a- Abraham, Abram is now 86 years old and uh, Sarai is 76 years old. It, and so it's been 10 years since they have uh, been receiving promises from God over the fact that Abram is going to have a child and, and all of these things and a great nation is going to come uh, through them. And it's, it's not an easy thing to wait 10 years for God to fulfill a promise, is it? God gives us a promise, and I'm, I'm thinking two weeks max. I've got I to gotta see something happening here. Gives them a promise, 10 years they're, they're waiting for, for something to happen, this miracle that God has, uh, has promised so, so Sarah's going to get impatient related to this. God isn't impatient at all. He's not, uh, he isn't on, on any kind of stress medication up in heaven. And, uh, and, and I mean, he's not nearly. I can't see him on a cell phone and driving and putting his makeup on or doing whatever, you know, multitasking like a nervous wreck kind of thing, whatever the male equivalent of that is, ladies. But all that kind of stuff, he's, he's very relaxed. And, and so, uh, but, but she isn't, they've been waiting 10 years and, uh, and still no children. And so she has an idea about how to fix all that. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So they probably picked her up uh, on that ill-advised trip uh, to Egypt uh, earlier uh, in their history to escape the famine. And Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So they've been married for a million years, just about, and uh, no children at all. And, uh, and, and the Lord seems to be doing this. So listen, God... God has told us for 10 years where you're going to have a child and all and, and everything. And obviously, God needs some help. And, uh, and any time uh, you think God needs help, uh, He doesn't. He doesn't. I remember years ago, those uh, Christian television telephones where 
They look right into the camera. God needs you like He's never needed you before. Which is true because He's never needed you before. So, so, but that He doesn't need our help. He keeps His promises. If they just kept abiding and moving forward, that child is coming. She gets antsy. She starts to feel time pressure on the thing. She's going to take it into her own hands and she's going to create an Ishmael. She is going to create a product of their flesh, which, which is a problem not only for them, but a, uh, something that reaches in uh, to modern uh, history today. So she says, here's my idea. Obviously, God gave this promise. It's not going to happen to me. I'm too old and all of this, 10 years, and so he must be up to something else. Here's probably what he wants to do. Go into my maid. Hagar, and uh, perhaps I will obtain uh, children through her. And it was very common in that day if uh, the, the wife of the husband, and they had servants and all, if she was barren, unable to have children, uh, that they, the, uh, by an agreement with the husband and the wife and, and all, that they would uh, then uh, you know, say, all right, well, let's have a child then through the servant, and then the child would come forth and would be delivered into the hands of the wife and then the husband would declare the child to be their child and would now uh, become, become their heir. And so this is the idea that uh, she comes up with now uh, and, and tells Abram about. And, uh, and so Abram uh, heeded the voice of, of Sarai. And so he listens to the plan. He says, all right, well, uh, sounds like a plan. Let's go ahead and, and do that. So he, he proceeds and, uh, and, and lies with her. It's going to be very, very successful on a carnal, physical level. It's going to be a disaster spiritually. And then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian gave her to her husband Abram uh, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. Now this is wrong. It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Marriage is one man, one woman, not one man, a woman, and a servant. So that's, that's, the, that's the morals of the culture around them. But they have no business doing this. Just simple obedience to God's word would have would have cut off this uh, this uh, headache and, and misguided adventure entirely. So he went into Hagar. She conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So Hagar, she's now she's with child by Abram, and now some kind. I don't know how women do it, but they can communicate maybe to other women that, uh, you know, kind of a Lucy thing, you know. <laughs> she, so she's communicating, yeah, you're my, you're my master, but I'm the one that's having a child. Now, in that culture, to be barren was considered to be cursed by God. It was considered a judgment by God. So now there's tremendous tension between two women uh, in, in, this, in this household. Tension that doesn't need uh, to be there uh, at all. So there's problems here. And then notice what Sarai does when the problems that begin to arise out of her uh, carnal plan. She said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. In essence, she's saying, I'm wrong, but it's your fault. Now this is why... Uh, men uh, take up bowling uh, because they can't get that uh, that at all so she says my wrong be upon you I gave my maid into your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived I became despised in her eyes the Lord judged between you and me I've made a mess of everything and and now she's throwing it on Abram all of the consequences uh, here and, and all and uh, and Abram doesn't show much leadership at this point in time he said to Sarai uh, indeed your maid is in your hand do with her as you please not a good thing for Hagar because and, and Sarah's Sarai doesn't look real pretty in this in this situation because she then dealt harshly with Hagar Hagar, and Hagar is ultimately pregnant now and forced to flee into the wilderness from uh, Sarai's uh, presence. Now the angel of the Lord found 
Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress uh, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress, go back into the camp there, and submit yourself under her hand. And, uh, and so God is going to force Hagar to go back into the camp, and Abram and Sarai and, uh, and, and uh, Hagar here are going to now be forced to live for the next 17 years with the consequences of this uh, situation that they had produced uh, in order to help uh, God out. And um, verse 10, And the, then the angel of the Lord said to her before she returns, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Uh, God loves Hagar. And, and he loves the boy that's going to be born uh, through, through Abraham and, and Hagar. And, and he now pronounces a blessing upon that, that child and what's going to come from, from that child. He is, he is going to, and this would really bless Hagar, so there are going to be so many of his descendants that you wouldn't be able to even count them. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God's he God hears, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And now she describes what Ishmael will be like and his descendants. He will be a wild man. In other words, and, and the descendants of Ishmael uh, are uh, the Arab people. And so he's going to be very independent, very untamable, very much a roving people, an unsettled uh, people. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him uh, wherever he goes he's going to be in conflict with his own brethren conflict with the people that uh, are, are around him and so he's going to be given to conflict given to fighting given to war and all and he will dwell in the presence of all his brethren and so it is a description uh, that actually fits for the descendants of Ishmael all the way through uh, 4,000 years of history even into this day and then he called the name uh, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her you are the God who sees for she said uh, have I not seen him who sees me and therefore the well was called uh, Beer Lahai Roy observe it is between Kadesh and Bered and so Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram call, uh, named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael uh, God hears Abram was 86 years old when uh, Hagar bore Ishmael uh, to Abram and so uh, here he is he finally becomes a father now at, at 86 but uh, problems are, are just kind of beginning in all of that I think one of the great lessons and, and there's kind of a phrase you know that is a good one uh, there should be a concern about creating Ishmael's anytime I feel that uh, God needs my help in a situation uh, then it, or I become impatient in the situation I'm going to take it into my control and I'm going to do for God what appears he isn't doing or can't do I'm going to create Ishmael's I'm going to create problems as a result of that and we don't want to create works of the flesh and that's what Ishmael represents the work of the flesh and uh, and it does create problems and then when Abram was 99 years old so you notice he's 86 in verse 16 now now he's 99 in verse 1 of chapter 17 so you got a 13 year gap between uh, the two uh, two chapters and uh, and so here uh, is is Abram and, and Sarai and uh, they've got a 13 year as far as the biblical record goes a 13 year period of silence between them and God God has made his covenant 
He has made his promise. Uh, he has watched them do all of this. He's done some damage control related to Ishmael and speaking to Hagar. But now they just continue to walk with God in silence now. God being silent for 13 years. And to their credit, they, they continue to just obey the Lord. They don't have to hear from God every day to walk with him and, and needing a constant revelation to stay faithful uh, to the Lord. And so the Lord now appears to Abram when he was 99 years old and he said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And so the Lord reminds Abram that he is Almighty God. He exhorts him now to walk before me that is conscious of my presence, be blameless. Translation, please no more Ishmael's. And he reminds him that he is Almighty God and in, in calling himself Almighty God, coming to Abram in this way he's reminding him that he doesn't need any more help in keeping his promises to uh, Abram uh, for a son and the way that God wants to do that and one of the reasons I think one of the we become uh, vulnerable to creating Ishmael's when we forget that God is almighty and that when he gives us a promise and he forces us to wait before he fulfills that promise, it is never because he lacks the power to fulfill it immediately. He's just waiting for the right time to do that. And, and to remember that he is God Almighty uh, keeps us from taking things into our own hands. And then the Lord speaks to him uh, once again concerning the covenant that he's made with Abram and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly and then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying and as for me behold my covenant the word covenant is going to be used 13 times in the chapter as for me behold my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations no longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of many nations, for I have made you a father of many nations. And uh, so God here now changes Abram's name at 99 years old. Oh, the paperwork, I'm telling you, that get the social security card, his agenda driver's license, and all those credit cards, and get them changed over into the thing. But he changes Abram's name uh, as a part of just confirming to him that he is going to keep his promise to make him the father of many nations. He gives him a name that is consistent with the promises that, that uh, God has given to uh, Abram. And so his new name looked ahead to his descendants. I'm going to be a father of a multitude. Now, uh, you go down to wherever and you fill out an employment application and uh, now you got to write your name down on that application and you're going to write Abraham father of many nations and you're what you're 99 years old your wife is 89 years old you've been trying to have a child for a million and a hundred a million and one hundred years and you haven't had a child and now you're writing your name down and asking everyone to call you uh, father of many nations that takes some faith to do that that takes some faith to take take that step and, and say I want you to call me by this name this is the name that God has given me and I believe that this is going to be true of me because God has said it the other thing that it does in changing his name is that every time Abraham now hears his name hears himself referred to as, as Abraham he is being reminded of the fact that this is in his future God is going to make him the father of uh, many nations and he says in verse 6 I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant uh, to be God to you and your descendants after you 
and to give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And then God said to Abraham, now, now I've got to say Abraham instead of Abram, and uh, so work with me on it. And so he says now to Abraham, the father of many nations, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be, notice, a sign of the covenant between uh, me and you. And he who is eight years old among you, uh, or I mean eight days old among you, shall be circumcised every male in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, so all Gentile servants, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And so God institutes now with Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, a, the covenant of circumcision. And it was what it was physically, as he describes there in verse 11. But what it represented physically in the circumcision of, of Abraham, of his descendants, it was just a reminder, a physical reminder to Abraham and his descendants that God would keep his covenant with them just as he had promised that, that he would. And God had given his promise. God would keep that promise. Romans chapter 4 verse 11. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. The right of circumcision and, and the purpose of it, another purpose of circumcision and why God gave it to Abraham and his descendants was that circumcision would be a mark of ownership. You notice that it's called a sign there in verse 11. And so it was a physical mark on their bodies, though a private mark on their bodies, that was a reminder to them uh, that they were not like all of the other people in the world. They were a different people. They they had a covenant relationship uh, with God and they were not to see themselves like all of the other people in, in the world. Also, to obey God in circumcision communicated that you believe that God would keep uh, His promises. Uh, these uh, people, Abraham is 99 years old when he's circumcised. So they're paying uh, a, a fair physical price now, uh, you know, uh, to say yes. It's easy to say, yes, we believe your promise and all. And, and now here's a little bit more related to that. And in being circumcised and, and submitting to to that they were communicating we are covenant people God is going to keep his covenant with us now circumcision also uh, represented not just in the New Testament but also in the Old Testament it symbolized spiritually the cutting away of the flesh it was to symbolize that the circumcised men, the circumcised nation, were a people not ruled by the flesh, but these were a people ruled by God. So the physical circumcision was something uh, that was just an outward sign of the circumcision of their heart. There was the removal of, of the flesh in the circumcision, but it represented that I am also cutting away the flesh from around my heart. I'm going to live a life that is dominated by God, by His covenant and His Word. I'm not going to live a life that is dominated by uh, my uh, flesh. And, and uh, significantly, Ishmael was conceived between Abram and, and Hagar prior to circumcision was a work of the flesh and, uh, and, and Isaac will, will be uh, conceived uh, following this um, uh, circumcision uh, because of the life of the Spirit, the life in line with the promises. Now over time 
the Jews made a great mistake and they began to think that the physical act of circumcision was what was most important to God rather than the sign and what it was meant uh, to represent that I'm a person who no longer lives for the flesh but I live for God and what God would have to communicate to them continually is the physical circumcision means nothing if it does not if it does not it is, if it is not also united with what it represents and that is a circumcised heart Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart the Lord said to them and be stiff-necked no longer Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul that you may live Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in line with of all of this, the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, as it relates to, to Christians, uh, the covenant that we have with God is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and, it is, and it is not represented by a physical circumcision. The covenant that we have uh, with God through Jesus, we demonstrate that by living a holy, obedient life to the Lord rather than living for the flesh. Paul wrote to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 11, related to this, and he said, In him... You also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins in the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. As Christians, we don't need the seal of, of circumcision. It, it, it has to do with Abraham and his descendants. The Bible teaches that we have a greater seal upon our lives, and that is the seal or the sign of the Holy Spirit now being inside of us. Uh, providing us with the will to live a life, a heart will to live obediently for the Lord and the power to live that kind of life. As Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and said, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As Christians, it is not necessary for uh, a, a, a Christian to be uh, circumcised. It's a, not a mark of spirituality being circumcised or uncircumcised. Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 2, and he said, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised for the purpose of, of establishing a right standing before God, other than just faith in Christ, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. And you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And so the whole uh, uh, issue of, of circumcision, how it applies to us. Acts chapter 15, remember these Judaizers were going around the different churches after Paul had been uh, teaching the word of God there and they would come to these new Christians and say, you can't get to heaven, you can't have a relationship with God unless you're circumcised and you keep the law of Moses. And the first church council to deal with these, these kind of heresies and wrong teaching was kind of convened in Jerusalem and uh, they determined by the Holy Spirit that that was not something that was to be put upon uh, the Gentile believers. Now it is interesting that, and I'll close with this, you don't have to worry about us uh, going uh, any, bit, uh, any further uh, in the chapter. Not that you're worried, I know that you love me to go just as long as I like. I'm just kidding. 
We're told there in verse 12 that the circumcision, and it's very interesting, was to be done to a male child uh, on the eighth day. And uh, very, very interesting in light of what we know today, but that they didn't know about, uh, you know, 4,000 years ago. Vitamin K facilitates the making and, and the correct function of clotting factors in the human body. It is particularly responsible for the production of an element known as prothrombin. And uh, if vitamin K is deficient, there's going to be a prothrombin uh, deficiency, and then hemorrhaging will occur because this is a key for clotting in, in the human body. This uh, vitamin K and prothrombin, is, it's not until the fifth through the seventh days in a male newborn's life that vitamin K is, is there in adequate amounts uh, to produce adequate clotting in, in, uh, in, a, in a male child. Today, when a, a child is born as a newborn in any hospital in the United States of America, they're immediately given a shot of, of vitamin K to begin this whole process. But they couldn't do that 4,000 years ago. But in the ancient world, it would have been very dangerous to circumcise a boy uh, before the seventh day. And it's very interesting that at about uh, day seven, uh, a, a newborn's vitamin K level will rise above the its uh, adult levels it will peak at age 8 it is and then uh, beginning at day 10 the vitamin K levels in a young boy will then drop down into uh, its adult level it is a level that they will maintain for the rest of their life the only period of peaking of vitamin K is right there surrounding uh, the eighth day and uh, the day that God declared that a circumcision should be, uh, you know, done uh, to the males. And uh, so there's no single day in all of, of uh, a male's life when uh, the, uh, the better for blood clotting than day eight. Isn't evolution wonderful? It's uh, really fabulous. I mean, only the Creator could know that, that kind of thing. And, uh, and so He knows what He's doing. His commandments are uh, quite amazing. Let's stand together. We'll stop there for the worship team to come forward. We'll pick it up in verse 15. God has a name change uh, for Sarai to Sarah. Well, there's... Wow, what can you say? Just great stuff all the way through here. And we'll look to hit it a little further next week.